0: Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar. Payments, the sequel, as I call it. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. It's my privilege to moderate our discussion today. Nine months have elapsed since we last explored this subject in June last year. Now, some things have changed since then, but an awful lot of things haven't. In fact, I sometimes think maybe nothing has really changed in payments at all. As the article accompanying this webinar asked, has payments innovation failed to live up to the hype? And that's one of the questions we'll be discussing today, whether despite all the FinTech fanfare, all the money that's gone into reinventing payments, has anything fundamental changed in payments at all? To address that question and many others, I'm joined by six people who are far better qualified to answer that question uh, than I will ever be. Chris Hamilton is a financial markets infrastructure expert who's worked in clearing and settlement with the ASX on the new payments platform in Australia and with Banks of Africa, the largest automated clearinghouse in Africa. Oliver von Landsberg Sadie is CEO at BCB Group, which provides a range of services to digital asset trading venues, including cryptocurrency payment services. Olaf Ransom is a payments and securities operations expert, currently working with the Six Digital Exchange. Olaf also worked with the Finality Bank Consortium on digitizing central bank money payments. Claire Rowley is head of business operations at the Global Legal Entity Foundation, GLIFE which aims to ensure every business a single global digital identity. John Salmon is technology partner at law firm Hogan Lovells where he specializes in advising financial institutions on FinTech projects. Rob Lincoln is CEO of PayDoc, a cloud-based payments orchestration platform that assists merchants who seek to benefit from the wide range of payments and related providers now in the marketplace. In addition to our panelists, as always, we do of course also have you, our audience, and all seven of us, are going to be extremely disappointed if we don't get lots of testing questions and comments throughout this webinar, uh, which you can submit by using the Q&A or chat functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Rest assured, we will not be saving them up to the end, but answer them as we go along so that we have at least an unexpected element that keeps our panelists uh, on their toes. So please don't disappoint us. I'd like to begin uh, with the point I raised a moment ago, which is, have we exaggerated the amount of innovation we're seeing in payments? I date the beginning of innovation to the emergence of PayPal about 20 years ago. Since then, it seems we've proved that banks are not needed to make payments. That's something we knew already. We've proved we can pay each other much faster, which I think we also knew already. We've proved we can pre-fund non-bank accounts from bank accounts, which probably wasn't worth doing in the first place. And we've proved we can cut the payments revenues of the banks, which has transferred wealth from one set of intermediaries to another. The central banks are still there. The banks are still there. The debit and credit card companies are not just still there worth even more than the banks themselves. And we also have a bunch of fintechs and their investors, which have also become enormously wealthy. In other words, is payments innovation not actually a great innovation phenomenon we think it is at all? Is it just an epiphenomenon in which a lot of clever developers have become enormously wealthy by using the internet to skim off the cream of the revenues of the banks? Rob, perhaps I could come to you first. Your at the heart of trying to turn payments innovation into something which merchants people actually selling goods and services to the public can can use what's your view is are we in the middle of the greatest innovation revolution uh, since uh, the invention of the steam engine or are we looking at something much more superficial
2: thanks dominic and great to be on the panel uh with you all great to be here and uh, that is it. that's a great question. That's a question that we uh, wrestle with every day, which is uh, exactly that. Is all this boiling ocean of fintech now actually amounting to anything? Who's helping who? Who is benefiting? Who's not benefiting? Who's actually potentially being frustrated? And where is it all going? I think over the last few years, what we've seen at Paydoc is that the boiling ocean of fintech choice has created a lot of confusion for merchants. And uh, as an orchestration platform, we're out there in the trenches working with merchants every day. And if we genuinely ask them, what is the difference between Stripe and ADN and Rapid and checkout.com and authorized.net, and I could go on, there's literally dozens. Those merchants honestly couldn't tell you the truth. So a lot of merchants are struggling to tell the difference between, you know, the different vendors out there. And then we introduced to this mix all the alternative payment methods, the buy now and pay laters. We look at what FPOS in Australia is doing, with FPOS online. And if you're a merchant and you're looking at out at this landscape, you don't know where to eat the elephant. And so I think while innovation can be great at a consumer level, often for the merchant, there might be some opportunity dying on the vine because they're not quite sure how to engage it and how to embrace that that benefit in a way that satisfies the you know the BAU of the business reconciliation compliance, customer experience you know just the technical integration points you know that's made Stripe so valuable. But I think it, I think also to answer your question you know seeing Stripe's recent valuation you know it was interesting I saw a footnote that said uh, that their valuation today is greater than the entire e-commerce industry uh, TTV when they started the business and I thought isn't that an interesting little statistic in the FT today to saying how this space is blown up. So I think the the question is a very diplomatic yes and no. Yes, it is one of the greatest revolutions we've ever seen. There's a lot of very powerful people being disintermediated and there's a real race to the bottom on transaction fees. But I think the question we should be asking is how, how is the merchant picking all this at the end of the day is a merchant in the chain, right? Who's taking care of the merchant in all of this? That's a really interesting question. I think, Sometimes for the merchant, the answer is it's challenging. Mm
1: -hmm. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Oliver, can I tempt you to to think a little bit about that question? I said rather contentiously that that a lot of non-bank fintechs are doing nothing except transfer money from banks to themselves. Uh, Tell us, do you think genuine innovation is actually going on here or not?
3: The way, uh, thanks for that, Dominic. The way I like to think about this is uh, as. I love Rob's uh, point of view from the you know the merchant solutions and the huge diversity of um, you know, back-end solutions back there trying to solve the same problems. I'm going to take it from a slightly um, different angle um, and draw some analogies with what we've seen with the evolution of um, goods distribution, specifically let's look at Barnes & Noble versus there's Amazon. Uh, I want to look at uh, how other models have been disrupted, uh, you know, public transport uh, to Uber, um, uh, you know, the hotel industry to Airbnb, and those models. And what I feel is happening is that um, you know we've got ISO uh, 222 coming in, which is uh, you know which bears a lot of promise to um, make things interoperable, build the ultimate network of payment networks. Um, and it is, in my view, genuine technic, uh, technological innovation which will allow the, 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 the world payments markets to, you know, to speak to each other more efficiently. But I still feel like it's an iteration, an improvement on on the the, the kind of a the twentieth century model. And, and I think um, much of what I'm going to say today is going to be blockchain flavored and. Uh, So where I'm going with this is that uh, I think there's a much more interesting innovation, um, which doesn't require a consensus of thousands of different banks and and central banks in the world to operate. It it requires um, uh, a a, a fundamental shift in thinking um, and that the blockchain-based payments networks, which we can go into another point in the conversation, represent that big phase shift from the hundred global payments networks to the single unified decentralized payments networks.
1: Right, Chris. Um, I, I, I was I was beginning to think that Oliver us being rather conservative there. You know, blowing a trumpet for ISO twenty eighty two. But actually, at the end, he said something rather radical there, which is actually that's you know trying to get thousands, tens of thousands of banks to sign up to ISO twenty eighty two is a really hard task compared with what you might do with some of the new technologies coming out of blockchain and the experiments currently taking place in DeFi. What's your What's your view? I can't remember, Chris, whether you're a a, a blockchain bear or a blockchain bull or somewhere in there. <laughs>
4: yeah. uh, very diplomatically both, but but I'll, I'll try and explain that in a second. Um, let, me, let me talk a little bit about the macro picture of your original question, which is, um, you know, are these innovations really changing the world? And I think there's actually a fair bit of evidence that they are, but to, to see the really big changes, you've got to look at uh, fundamental network change rather than, people innovating on top of the network, Now, there's anything wrong with innovating on top of the network, because it's going to improve things, make things go faster, make them cheaper, blah, 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 all really important stuff, right? But if you're looking for fundamental change, you've got to look for the networks that are changing. And that's where I think the bears, if you like, are pointing at Bitcoin and saying it's not changing the fundamental network. And right now they're right, but the networks are changing. And it's easier to see if you go to development economies, developing economies. Why? Because they're cash-based. They haven't yet got a network that's an incumbent, right? So let's have a look. What have we got? We used to have just cards and cash. I'm talking retail payments only. I know business payments, a whole different ballpark. Put that to one side for a second. Talking cards and cash. That's what we used to have. Now we have cards. We have cash. We have telco wallets, right? And we have social media. And there are now countries that are dominated by all four of those models. And and the, um, the banks are fighting back with real time, which is also, in my view, going to become a dominant model in a number of jurisdictions. It's well on the way already, right? So if you want to go and look at genuine fundamental infrastructure change, have a look at China, right? The retail banks in China have, it's sad to say, if you're a bank, lost retail payments to social media companies, to the likes of WeChat and PayPal. That's fundamental change. This is a completely different way of doing things and brings a whole lot of different policy problems for the government there and a whole lot of new issues and new opportunities around that fundamental shift, right? Um, If you want to look at telcos, have a look at Kenya, Uganda, you know, basically East Africa, where, again, the banks are not doing retail payments business. The telcos are. Uh, Now, these are not technological changes, although they're obviously enabled by technology. What we're seeing now is a fantastic petri-bish of experimentation across the world on these different networks. And then all of those big fundamental changes spawn enormous amount of innovation on top of them. Crypto isn't there yet in that conversation I've just given you. It's not that
1: it's not going to be, it's just not there yet. So just before I let you go, Chris, you know. Genuine innovations like PayPal, like AliPay, TenPay, in Pesa, which you which you've mentioned, but they leave the, the the a in in some of those countries there was there was nothing there was no incumbents for them to displace yeah. was there so they were pushing it at an open door, but at the same time it hasn't fundamentally changed the need for banks has it? you still need banks to supply liquidity you still need banks to supply credit what can change that is my real question, can anything? Yeah, the-
4: I mean I, I, my answer to that is to say. You actually really need to think carefully about what you mean by
1: bank. When you ask that question, A deposit taking institution is what I mean, uh, which then lends the deposits to other. people. OK, OK, but the, the
4: classic. The classic bank analysis is there are four main functions, right? There's deposits, there's credit, there's investments and there's transactions. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking the payment sense. There are other things that banks do, but that's the fundamentals of it. Right now, um, my belief is that the banking world is, is undergoing its own quiet revolution. And that increasingly those four things won't be done in one place. So what we now all have in our heads as a bank is actually not going to look less and less useful as time goes on because organizations will specialize into things that they do. Now, the most important thing that we in payments need someone to do is to store value, right? And banks will continue to try and do that aggressively. If you're in a blockchain world, then you can argue that the value is stored on the blockchain. It's stored in the network, if you like. We can get into the details of whether, how that works and how intermediated that's going to be later on, if you like. But fundamentally, we still need someone to store value on behalf of consumers. That's not going away anytime soon, although the organizations that do it might change quite a lot, right? Um, and then the transaction processing, you're right. Don't need a bank to do that. It's easy now, technologically, disaggregate that from stores of value and from credit provision. And so that's a big challenge for the banks. That's where they've had most of their trouble because new organizations are coming in and cherry picking transactions off that bundle, right?
1: Okay, thanks, Chris. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Now, what's the use of banks? If we get CBDCs, could we just leave the job of of uh, that that storing value to, to the central bank? Or are the central banks gonna insist on operating through this network of, of commercial banks. Where's real revolution going to come from here? What's the, what's the thing that commercial banks do which is completely uh, unreproducible by anybody else? Is it, is it that, that deposit taking? Is it that store va- of value? Certainly, we've seen not that transaction management or that movement of money. What's the...
5: Um, right, let So for the financial sector, They need, their job is to move and allocate money at risk. So if I look at it in the wholesale perspective, um, the CBDC thing um, could help them on the wholesale side if they don't have to be the, um, the correspondent banks and holding balances overnight that, that we've had to date. So one uh, on the wholesale side of the business, big challenge, we leave money all over the place, credit balances, debit balances, and that that's incredibly expensive we've set that up over many years so we end up with fragmented liquidity that's just been a function of the way we've built stuff because nobody really cared about the plumbing functions because like yeah we make so much money as long as the costs are down here it's kind of okay and now it isn't now we're not making so much money so suddenly you're making normal profit and that plumbing stuff matters and all that liquidity so the liquidity part that banks do is extremely expensive um, the, the good folks at uh, wyman did some work on this and then the guys at uh, HQLAX, the, uh the the fintech startup did a bit an extra test and they said well, look on average the gsips have got 230 plus billion in liquidity buffers of which 10 to 30% is for intraday. So just to make sure the right amount of money is in the right place at the right time, that's amazingly expensive. So we've got this opportunity now, as particularly as blockchain comes along and says, I'm a clever bit of technology. You could use my bit of technology to replumb the world. We have an opportunity. We don't have to use blockchain, but it's got us all thinking. As we put that together, if we can do liquidity in new forms and connect up, Securities markets, payments capabilities in new ways, will reduce those costs. So to your question, are we there yet? No, absolutely not, particularly in wholesale. um, We we haven't gone there. Um, Yes, we'll see the Chinese do something in in retail. I think they'll stick to the two-tier model. I'm not particularly great at the retail side of payments, but it feels like they want to do the two-tier model. Uh, I'm sitting in a, a country that's reasonably advanced here in Switzerland, um, we don't really, there's no particular reason for us to have a new payment system. It, it works. But the Chinese are taking, saying, look, we can set the world standard. And that's kind of a bit of soft power, uh, particularly closer to where Chris is at home uh, around Africa. So that's what so we, we might see.
1: The best we can look forward to, LF, is, is economizing on liquidity costs.
5: Yes. But to, just, to, just to put this in a little <laughs> bit of perspective, um, Uncle Sam still sends cheques, right? The most advanced economy in the world, Ho Ho, sent my son, who's an American citizen, a COVID cheque. A cheque. You, you have to be kidding, but 2021, and Uncle Sam is still cutting cheques. I was very surprised when this made it to him. Uh, the funny thing is, we don't actually know how to deposit those in Switzerland particularly easily. No one can remember.
3: Well, um, I had to ask my bank to send, a fa- I had to find somebody to send a fax to my bank to make my house deposit um, when, when I moved. Uh, yeah, that
1: tick. It's a form of liquidity management though, Olaf, because you can't cash the cheque. They can keep Fair it enough. OLAF.
4: Yeah. But, but guys, it is all about networks. Hey, the reason why the US is in such a strait is because it finds it impossible to shift its entire network at the same time. It's really, it's really kind of that simple, right? Uh, and, and this is why I say in developing economies where they don't have that problem, you can see some really interesting things being done at yep. a network level because all they're fighting against is cash. That's it, right? Uh, and I think yep. that, that, that gives you the clue to where you're going to succeed and fail. Where can you get a big enough network effect?
2: I think, I think that's a really good point, and it relates to something that you were saying, Oliver, which is it's really tempting, I think, to get on a panel and say, this is the winner. This is the next big thing. You know, and every time that there's some announcement about Libra or, you know, uh, ISO two or, you know, um, there's, there's a whole series of protocols out there, We don't actually know which one's gonna win or in which jurisdiction or which geography or how consumer sentiment is gonna change the way that people interface, whether they're happy to do things on a different kind of ledger through mobile money, who knows? And I think that's one of the amazing things about where we sit, sort of at an acceptance layer, the enormous fragmentation that we are. We're bridging the divide from a check on one hand to something that's blockchain enabled and exploratory on the other hand and, and everything in the middle. And I think that's what makes the current situation payments so fascinating, because we just don't know how everything's going to shake out. But at the same time, merchants in particular, from our perspective, you know, they're, they're wanting to participate, but it's, it's such a noisy, confusing, fragmented, fast moving space on one hand. And then on the other hand, we're still we've still got checks. I think the last check that I got, I, I put it on a magnet on the fridge just to keep it there. I'd never checked it. I didn't, never banked, didn't know what to do with it. <laughs>
1: We're starting to get some questions coming in now, which I'd like to put to people, but um uh, in a minute now uh, Claire, I know that you've you've been observing what's happening in the in the shape of stable coins, payment tokens on 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 blockchain networks. What is your view of what contribution they can make to genuine innovation in the payments markets?
6: Certainly, and I'll pick up a bit on some of the themes mentioned by Rob and by Chris here, and that is, you could say, starting to look more at the micro um, and how fintech, how innovation is happening there, and then could expand more to a macro perspective. So I I agree um, with Rob's perspective there that there's quite a lot of noise out there with so many choices, And, and certainly for merchants, it's quite difficult to follow. But If you look at what the fintechs and and innovative companies are doing, sometimes in very specific corridors, it it really can help to reduce transaction costs for the the smaller end user. And just for example, we have some discussions with a a fintech and they're specializing in remittance payments between the United States and Philippines. So there you have a solution. It's a very specific market, but you've significantly reduced those transaction costs for the the involved parties. and, and perhaps just to look at some of the innovation that is coming from the crypto area. So my organization, the Life, we are, not, we are not payment facilitators by any means, but what we do is we provide a, a network of global and recognized identity for legal entities. And so specifically in the emerging area of cryptocurrency or other assets, this is a very important aspect, identity. So you could say it is something that slows down existing payment networks, especially in cross border payment networks. How do you know that the originator, the beneficiary, who they are, how can you conduct your sanction screening in an efficient manner? Um, And you see now as cryptocurrencies are coming more mainstream, this very same dialogue happening, um, again, just for a different type of market. Um, And so Certainly I believe that cryptocurrencies, they have a valid role to play. And sometimes it is to maybe assist with that liquidity buffer because you have certainly um, a larger peer-to-peer network uh, for common uh, common um, exchange unit. Um, but where we focus a bit is is looking at, well, how can you be sure that these exchanges are secure and transparent and also done in a way that doesn't replicate some of the drawbacks of today's payments infrastructure, so high cost, uh, lack of standardization, um, and that is where we, you will find the LEI, the legal entity identifier, entering the conversation as a means to identify the different parties involved in payments transactions and to act as a global standard to help to and facilitate network interactions such that the costs ultimately can be lower. And I think that's where you will see the success coming as cryptocurrencies or other digital assets grow um, because they have to be lower cost. They can't replicate the problems of current systems of current exchanges. Otherwise, ultimately they will they will come to a dead end very quickly. Okay, thanks,
1: Kat. I'd like to read out a, a, an observation made by Nick Ogden, who's a member of our audience. Financial innovation always happens post a crisis Given that we're in one, and there's been substantial transformation, in how we all work, and with the arrival of, uh, of a new global LVL network, what happens next? Considering that LVL collapses all payment types into a simpler open digital environment operating 24-7 by 365. Now, John, you've been very patient. I'd like, like to bring in your working with, with FinTechs. You must be seeing at first hand some of the things they're trying to do in terms of payment tokens, cryptocurrencies, central bank digital currencies programmable money. We had a whole webinar on this a a few weeks back, uh, which seemed to boil down to conditional payment was all it was. What's worrying me about everything I've heard, with the honourable exception of of Oliver here, uh, who's going to explain to us the new paradigm hopefully in a minute, uh, all we can look forward to is lower liquidity costs and cheaper and faster payments. Uh, What are you you seeing that uh, presages a genuine innovation revolution? in how payments are sourced and made.
0: I think, I mean, it, I think it is what, what the other panelists have said, Dominic, which is, and, and maybe an, a point to kind of reemphasize is that innovation to some extent, uh, if taking out the blockchain stuff for a minute is curtailed by the fact that, you know, most of that innovation is built on existing payment rails, right? It's, you know, the point that Chris made about infrastructure and networks are important is if you if you're, If you've got the existing infrastructure, there's a limit to what you can do. You know, mPesa is is different, obviously, because it didn't use any network infrastructure. You know, that's a good example um, of something where the infrastructure wasn't used. So if we look, if we go back to using some sort of crypto asset infrastructure, then CDBCs. You know, I've done I do a lot of sessions on CDBCs, etc. for Governments and policymakers around the world. And I think it is, you know, if you look at particularly what Sweden's been looking at with e-Krona, Sweden's got to the position where they are worried about uh, the, the, the decline in the use of cash has got to the extent that they're concerned that people will not be able to pay using cash. And if people can't pay using cash, that, that basically takes the lower strata of society potentially out of, the, uh, out of being able to pay for things. So they are. They want to introduce some, the, what they call e-crona, which is basically a, a state-backed digital currency. And I think a state-backed digital currency could completely um, reinvent the payment infrastructure. Yes, if you look at it from a UK perspective, the Bank of England, no doubt, would look after that and there would be lots of regulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it could completely reinvent the network infrastructure and the rails upon which payments were made. And that would really, really lead to... Um, a lot more innovation, I think, in the space. But it would also lead to, you know, the points that others have made around. It wouldn't just be retail; it would go into wholesale. It would go into clearing and settlement. You know, there would be, there would be a lot of ripples of innovation uh, through through that. And certainly, for, from my perspective, I, if we look at from a societal perspective, from a financial inclusion perspective, then I, I think CDBCs. Have have its attractions because do we want to be at the behest of a big tech company owning potentially um, a digital currency that that we all end up using or many many people in society end up using or would we rather the government I mean discuss right do we I suppose it depends on your view on government uh, but um, you know I, I think uh, I think that 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 is where innovation is going to come in Dominic.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, we do discuss CBDC. We've discussed it three times um, already, and I'm glad you think it's going to be a source of, of innovation here. But the, the problem we face still is that actually making payments is incredibly expensive. Despite everything that, that's happened, it's one and a half, two trillion dollars a year on the global economy. It's a thousand dollars ahead. We're, we're eating, you know, two or more than 2% of global GDP making, making payments. It's clear this could be um, made a lot, a lot cheaper. So Oliver, perhaps this is a moment for you to share with us your your new paradigm based not on banks and ISO 2082 and existing networks, but something completely different, uh, which will get that 2% of global GDP
3: down. What's, what's your vision? Uh, Dominic, I wish more people uh, appreciated the, uh, the true cost of payments. Um, what's so obvious and visible to people who are skeptical of the cryptocurrency market is the cost of mining Bitcoin? It's such a big salient number. You can observe it easily. It's so easy to calculate. Um, and you know, when it costs five pounds to send five pounds, people you know scratch their heads and think, "Is how's this ever going to replace the existing existing system of um, stores of value as, and, and and methods of payment?" Um, and you know, so the the counter example right there is, of course, well, the incumbent network. I mean, the existing uh, uh, global infrastructure of payments costs a hell of a lot of money, and um, that really needs um, uh, more prominence. But I think um, that gross difference in price for the uh, for the cost of a transaction um, is is directly proportional to how how inefficient the the existing market is, and. For me, the paradigm shift that sold me out of 20 years in banking and into um, this whole funky uh, fringe blockchain space was in this blockchain space, there is a single source of truth that 10,000 nodes can agree on. Whereas in the the existing payments network, 10,000 correspondent banks and their Nostro and Vostro account have to agree with each other. That reconciliation process itself is, um, you know, adds cost and inefficiency. Um, and um, t- t- at the risk of oversimplifying the paradigm, but that, that is it: it is 10,000 truths or a single truth. Um, and the efficiency of generating and replicating that truth across a decentralized network is actually a tiny fraction of the cost of maintaining 10,000 truths. But uh, that, I
1: mean, cross-not backs exist for a reason. Uh, you know if I want to send ten thousand dollars to new york um i don 't actually send ten thousand dollars to my bank in in London to a bank in New York. An arrangement has to be made, but somebody needs to needs pounds in new york and uh, i can the bank arranges for my dollars to be given to them by a sort of book entry system. You think that a blockchain network can replace that structure, do you?
3: I, I do because uh, on a blockchain structure, uh, the value exists on the network, and it is being physically sent from one identifiable address to another, um, and uh, the, and and there is no need for any kind of RTGS or um, you know net settlement at the end of the day to true that up. It is it is now. I
0: I, I agree with Oliver. I think it is, I, I, and you know part of the part of the reason. Dominic, you know, and I, again, I think I agree again that it's helpful for you to call out the the cost of payments. But the reason that there is a cost of payment is there's big trust and regulatory issues in this. You know, if people want to make a payment, they want to know it's getting to the right person. Right. I mean, that might sound totally obvious, but I mean, the, the reason, you know, there's still lots of people don't trust digital payments at all, you know. Um, so I think it is that's, you know, and, and there's a very expensive infrastructure being built around that over a long period with where there was much more cl- clunky processes. So, and I think just stripping all that away and using blockchain would, would really, um, you know, reinvigorate all of that.
5: Okay, Clara. I'd say there's an access question there as well, because to the yep. thing that uh, Oliver started with, or what Dominic started with, if you're in the UK your bank may not have the ability directly to process dollars. If it was able to hold some dollars for settlement purposes, it would make that payment on a peer-to-peer basis, even to the other bank that's receiving it. And and they'd credit John's account and John would be happy in in the US and, and there would be fewer intermediaries. But it's actually the rules from the regulators that say who's allowed to play in the different payment systems. And those were rules that were probably seemed okay when we wrote them several eons ago. And on that, we've now, to Chris's earlier point, we've layered tiers of correspondence into that because that's just the natural outcome of the restrictions. If, as we have this moment to use blockchain technology and DLT, and we're thinking about what we're doing, if we can change to -to peer-to-peer, and even if you keep the banks in the picture, But if you can make access to payments, balances, easier for settlement purposes, you will free up swathes of things um, and have a better arrangement between the foundations and the the layers on top as as Chris described them. So I think we we have an opportunity, um, particularly in wholesale where the numbers are big, the overdrafts are huge, the liquidity costs, as I quoted earlier, are are absolutely enormous. Um, We can do it, we have a chance to build for better.
1: Okay, thanks, and I'd like like Claire to to think a little bit about that trust question that John has raised. Before before you do, Claire, I'd like to to stay with Olaf. There's a question raised here by Eugene Kemp, which is, does SWIFT and ISO have a part to play in wholesale change on the horizon? The legacy conundrum is huge, interoperability, standards, compliance, and cross-border efficiencies are critical. How do we transform without uh, rip and replacing? the reason I think that's relevant, uh, Olaf, is while you, while you were talking, I was thinking, well, the regulators have set up this system where they decide who can play inside the, the RGGS system in each country, for example. So mm-hmm. what, if we, what if we had a system, to, to address Eugene Kemp's question, where RGGS systems could link directly? Could you get rid of correspondent banks? Is that even possible?
5: Um, you could get rid of some of the functions of a correspondent bank. So Credit Suisse down the road from me right now, you know, they, they sent a 1,000 payments over to Bank of New York and said, make these for us on value day, Tuesday, please. And they get paid the dollar a transaction or whatever it is. That piece could go away. But Credit Suisse would have other reasons for keeping a relationship with Bank of New York. Because actually what they really want is they want liquidity. So they might actually go in the future if you had wider access to either CBDC or a private equivalent like finality. You could go into a trading screen and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Swiss bank, I got some Swiss francs, I, I need dollars. Who's got dollars available now? And you trade liquidity. So I see there that correspondent banking department making a couple of payments, perhaps tomorrow they don't do that. But the role for the banks to provide liquidity, absolutely, but that's what they're there for, allocating uh, and moving money and risk. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but everything wrong with being in the way of the, 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 the individual payments and, and all the delays that
1: go with it. Yeah, we are talking here about cross-border payments, which are particularly excruciatingly painful uh, form of payment, but domestic costs are significant as well. Now, Claire, um, the point that John raised about trust, uh, one of our favourite solutions to this at Future Finance is, is digital identity to try and get rid of those KYC, AML, CFT sanctions screening costs, which is work which banks do to make sure that the payment you're sending is from the person who says it comes from and it gets to the person who they'd like it to get to. Is there, is there a technological answer to cutting those costs in the same way we can cut liquidity costs and transaction costs?
6: Indeed and also I just want to speak a moment to the part of the question about legacy systems and the difficulty of, of updating those. Um, The Financial Stability Board has published a series of reports about cross-border payments and how to improve some of the efficiencies there. They look specifically at the high cost, the low speed, limited access, and insufficient transparency. And you see there that indeed around the topic of identity, which is the core of the trust, you are looking at still reliance on manual processing, uh, a variety of identity schemes that are used throughout the world, and digital identity is indeed a solution to that. So instead of passing around payment messages, which have text interpretation of names, relying instead of identifiers that are machine readable um, and can don't have the complications of, for example, translation, transliteration, different character sets. Um, but of course, a very key aspect to digital identity is you need to, to have a cryptographically bound identifier with a physical entity and that can be done through for example products like digital certificates or if you're looking more a bit future oriented and especially in blockchain networks the topic of credentials that's the idea of having a a wallet where a a user or a participant in a network can present certain credentials that are again cryptographically tied to that entity that give you the trust factor that indeed you're interacting with an entity who who is who, is, who it says it is Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, would bring down greatly the topic of KYC AML sanction screening. So if there was a way in the cross-border topic to, to reliably, in a completely interoperable global way, understand who is the entity that I'm dealing with on the other side, that would greatly facilitate, first of all, that basic step of creating accounts. So your KYC, your onboarding, um, the due diligence that is required to understand better the Um, if I focus on legal entities only, just where this entity is incorporated, the basic details of it, um, and then facilitate much more, you could say, machine processing of transactions rather than what we have today, where transactions are interrupted for manual intervention due to sanction and uh, sanction screening. So indeed, uh, we see that digital identity and the progress there it will impact both worlds. It will impact your traditional world as we see that regulators around the world are focusing on this, especially in the COVID times, to how can I improve my existing processes and then absolutely for your emergence of networks where the basic question of what are my credentials to sign onto this network, that is that is directly at the heart of digital identity.
1: Mm-hmm. Chris, um, thank you. Thank you for that, that, Claire. Now, to some extent, the whole digital identity thing is, really is a data problem. It's about sharing data between um, the parties to a, to a transaction. Uh, but if we also pick up the, the questions that Nick Ogden and, and Eugene Kemp have been asking here, you know, there's an expectation among members of the audience that there's going to be some, there needs to be some innovation here. And they're wondering still where it's going to, where it's going to come from. The crisis is a great opportunity, says Nick Ogden. And uh, Eugene Kemp is asking us, well, you know, where are SWIFT and, and ISO 2082 in this, um, you know, what Oliver's mentioned that. So, as you as you look at this, Chris, as a as a data exchange problem, um, is is the answer here? I think it's the question Swift would probably ask. Is the answer APIs or is the answer blockchain networks? Can these two technologies work together? You're on mute, Chris. I think so. You need to unmute yourself. I'm sorry. There we go.
4: They had absolutely worked together, but, but I want to, before I talk about that a little bit, I want to take a step back um, uh, and, and um, just bring in the different elements of that picture. Let's start by making an assumption, and I can only really assert it here rather than prove it, that if um, you have a universal network for any community that wants to do payments among itself, that is going to be fundamentally cheaper, orders of magnitude cheaper than a non-universal network with complex interoperability, right? And and so the simplest way to get payments costs down enormously is complete global domination by one network, right? Now, as soon as I say that, you start to see where I'm going with this, right? That's probably not something we wanna see happen for other reasons.
1: Uh,
4: Particularly if it's a commercial organization whose credentials are not completely spotless, right? Without mentioning any names. So, so there's, therein lies your fundamental problem. There's no doubt that getting everybody onto one network, whatever the format is, and, and, and here I'm a little bit of a blockchain bear because I'm not convinced that it's the blockchain which is causing the fundamental benefit. It is the universal network effect that's causing the fundamental benefit, right? There is one caveat to that, which is what people like to call, used to call smart contracts. We can, Oliver can probably talk about that a little bit more later on. Programmable money, I think, is a phrase you've used as well. That's a really interesting topic, and there is genuine innovation there, but one to one side. It's getting the network effect to work that is going to bring by far the biggest benefit. Trust is an element of that because everybody who's allowed to play on the network has to be qualified to play in some way, and that is your digital identity. That's your trust credential presented to the network, right? Uh, and how you do that um you know there can be very very many models but again the more universal the model the more powerful the network effect and the cheaper the whole thing's going to be right a problem right now and i didn't really appreciate it living in in australia which is one country on one continent on one island right <laughs> so you can organize things the way you like in africa 55 governments literally tens of thousands of languages An enormous diversity in the way people want to do things and who they want to relate to and how they connect so you can see that the networking problems in Africa are diabolically difficult right. And so that's really brought it home to me that we have to do something about solving that and it's actually a social problem, not really a technological one right it is, how do we all agree that we're going to do things a certain way if we can, if we can get that we can really bring the cost down a lot now. So if you step back from global domination by one entity and you go, okay, we don't want that for a whole lot of other political reasons, what's the next best? Then very high interoperability between strong networks is your next best thing. And that's where APIs come in because they offer the opportunity for very highly functional networks that bind a particular community together to interoperate that community with another community and they offer that in an efficient technological way. So, and and I gotta say the the blockchain that underlies Bitcoin is not necessarily great at this in my, as my understanding, I'm not a technologist, but having looked at this for a while, but later versions of blockchain seem to have grabbed onto this and and have a great deal more potential in terms of interoperability. Um, If you can um, give each community that wants to pay mainly among itself, but a little bit to other people, If you can give them a really strong network solution, blockchain or not, plus the opportunity to highly interoperate with the next guys, you probably got the best real world alternative that we're likely to have. And, um, you know, we can see this in the political sphere as well. The various attempts towards common currencies across countries, towards common sets of payment standards across countries are really an instance of this how do I make interoperations between these different networks work as smoothly and as cheaply as possible?
1: Sorry for the really macro answer, but that's kind of how. It. Robin, in fact, to address a point raised by Nick Obden now, but before I do, are you saying, Chris, that API is an alternative to standards? Is, is AP, Are APIs an alternative to ISO 20822 To the problem that Oliver referred to, we're going to get 10,000 banks to sign up to the global standards.
4: Yeah. So, so um, in one sense, I would agree that uh, that APIs are an alternative to ISO 2022. ISO 2022 is an intra-network solution to standardisation, right? APIs don't assume that all the networks speak the same language, right? The technology allows different networks speaking different languages, and ISO 2022 you can think of as a language, right? to interact efficiently or relatively efficiently. But of course, that brings you a new meta-standardization problem, which is what is the standard for the API? And there we get into another interesting conversation. But if you want a classic ISO 22 network to talk, to talk to an Ethereum network, you can do it, and you can do it with APIs, as I understand the technology.
0: Right.
1: Now, Rob, could I throw some comments by, using Kemp says digital wallets, digital ID, blockchain, does it not synergize the whole cash and security settlement for banks? Today we operate very siloed in this space. It's what we've just been talking about really is, is, is how blockchain APIs and, and, and all the national differences, which Chris referred to work together. But the more important question I'd like you to think about Rob is, is Nick Ogden's point. It's not the technology it's the level of service for the customer that matters. You have to mix appropriate technology to deliver super customer satisfaction. Because we tend, you know, working the factory service industry to forget all about the retailers uh, and the shops and the people, actually, the merchants dealing with, um, with the public at large. You know, none of this matters to them. They just want to collect payments and make payments efficiently, don't they? So it, are, we, are we creating a world of customer dissatisfaction with all this uh, ersatz innovation that's going on?
2: I think we're creating a world where customers demand freedom and flexibility and choice. And we certainly don't want to create a point of sale that's you know, got 25 QR codes on it. Or you know, we've seen merchants with multiple different points of sale. And then we've got wallet-based solutions, et cetera. It does get very confusing for the merchant. I was, I was reading um, Eugene's comment here and then reading Nick's, Nick's answer and thinking about the relationship to the two of them. And I, I think, Chris, you said it well, interoperability is the word. We are we're stuck for better or worse in this system where there's so many different things going on. And it's exactly right. You need to mix appropriate technologies, just as you said, Nick. Um, that's what we're seeing on the field. That's what we're seeing coming back from the retailers. They say, look, this is great. I have this thing with you know, Acquirer A and Acquirer B, but I also need to be able to do C, D, E, and F. And I need to be able to plug things on and off as I choose in a way that doesn't cost me a lot and I can't pick a winner today because the the space is moving so fast so um, customer satisfaction is great but if you're moving the dial by like half a percent but it's going to cost you 200 grand to do it you're just going to leave that opportunity behind and I think when we're seeing emerging technologies like here in the UK we've got um, people like TrueLayer and Tink and others doing a great open banking technology we look at what Visa was seeking to do with Plaid in the US, And we look at what Fpos is doing in Australia, least cost routing, particularly digital least cost routing, and and what's that's doing in Australia? Fascinating, amazing dynamics, and I think I think there is a genuine race to the bottom. Personally, that's my belief. That's what I'm seeing play out in the market. There is a race to uh, the bottom on transaction acceptance fees as well. So it's it's both driving the needle in the customer satisfaction side in a way that doesn't cost you an arm and a leg and take 12 months to bolt on one new feet, you know, one new vendor. And on the other side, merchants saying, well, actually I can see over there, I'd save a lot of money, be a lot cheaper. And, and I think one of the really interesting things that happened in the market here was um, uh, with Mastercard's announcement to increase interchange um, outside coming for funds transferring out of the UK. Very interesting thing. And so merchants saying, well, look, that was a, another change in the market I'm exposed to. I wish I had an interoperable uh, approach to the market to enable me to mix and match my payment strategy to stay aligned with the times. So this, I think this is obviously, you know, my job, but I feel like this is a theme that's not going away anytime soon. And you have to mix uh, the technologies as you say, Nick, but I think the real question is how, how are you going to do that? And so I think a lot of people say, well, it's going to be ISO, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. But Chris, as you say, that's going to be wrapped around APIs and people are going to have their own interpretations and value adds on those APIs and they're going to write their own standards. And and so, you know, the game continues. And then will that increase the cost of acceptance on what, you know, in an isolated instance, may be quite a cheap point-to-point processor but quite an expensive experience for the merchant. We don't don't yet know, but... um, It is very early days for a lot of these technologies, that's for sure.
3: Just want to tack on to that, if you don't mind, Rob. Uh, And uh, this is um, based on your comment about, you know, how do you actually uh, mix those technologies and deliver that uh, customer satisfaction? And this is not really to add to that point, but really a shout out of fandom to Nick Ogden and what he's doing at Clearbank, because I think they do um, absolutely nail it uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, presenting a unified API that, that handles a whole bunch of mixed technologies in the back And while I'm expressing fandom let me also um, say how much I I, I respect the LEI initiative um, which uh, it, again it speaks to the single source of truth that we really need to glue all of these um, networks together for that truly global interoperable thing you know, to, to and for anybody who thinks I'm a blockchain extremist uh, I, I'm not I think the solution lies squarely in the middle of the you know the, the blockchain world and the existing uh, infrastructure and um, you know, initiatives like uh, Life, uh, if, I, if that's how you pronounce it, um, you know,
2: address that squarely. A blockchain, blockchain pragmatist, isn't
1: it? Oliver, can I, can I just, one thing that's puzzling me here is that we've established, I think, through the course of this conversation, we need banks. Uh, and we need banks because of liquidity. We can, we can make that liquidity cost a bit cheaper, but we also need banks to extend credit. People don't always have the money to make a payment, they need to borrow it from somebody. And we need a system which enables them to do that if money is going to continue making the the, the world go round. And no matter how efficient we make the networks, which Chris has referred to, uh, and maybe we get down that one and a half to $2 trillion a year cost down to something through the use of blockchain or APIs or, or, or some other technology, that fundamental problem of, not a problem, that fundamental need for a banking system to support payments doesn't seem to go away under any of the scenarios we've discussed. We've talked here just about cutting transaction costs. We haven't talked about fundamentally changing the system by which payments are are made.
3: I don't think banks are ever going to go away, but um, that's because, as somebody neatly expressed, was it Chris or Rob? I can't remember. You know, Probably Olaf. Bank... He's very good on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they're very banks have you know four distinct functions. You know, uh, that was Chris. Uh, yeah yeah deposits credit transactions and um the, the the point is you know i think um the longevity of banks will always be in that space of uh, you know deposits and lendings uh, deposits and loans but um the payment space i think can be uh, be independent but um in the fullness of time and this is where i do go a little blockchain extremist um i think we will see a flip between um uh, you know where the current global reserve currencies are in Predominantly USD, but also a smattering of euro uh, and other big national currencies will flip into a cryptocurrency TBC. Um, at which point do you need the banks? Um, because the value then is not um, a promissory note with a central bank, but it is um, an agree a, a different kind of consensus of value.
1: Uh, okay. Yeah i um, read out an observation by Peter Davey, cross-border payments and transfers and sanctioned screening requirements. Um, he says these are requirements on, on PSPs, payment service providers, and VASPs, not central systems like RTGS systems operated by central banks. The key issue is that need to cater for screening data to pass separately from individual payments but linked with the payments. In other words, that identity piece needs to be linked directly with the, the actual payment, which I, I guess is what transaction management platforms like Swift, GPI are sort of moving towards. Um, so you get the benefits of netting and aggregation, uh, which you can lose in, I guess, in gross payment systems. So regulators need to, to cater for the flexing of wire transfer regulations and the, the travel rule. Um,
5: Dominic, I think there is some, some flexibility needed in there because depending on how you set up a blockchain, too much information can be a dangerous thing. And that you share too much. So fundamentally, and this is something my former colleagues at Finality looked at, if you make a payment on a peer-to-peer network, how much do you want to disclose? Uh, and the, the, the simple way of looking at it is you probably want to send the details about who sent it who. and who the ultimate beneficiary is separate from the movement of the money. So as we adopt blockchain or any other technology, we just need to think about those two components. There's the movement of the money and there's the information to do the right thing with you know your customer and all the rest. They don't necessarily have to be on the same network. We can we can separate those those things out. And depending on what kind of blockchain you, you might want to use, if you indeed want to use blockchain, that is probably a good thing would be a would be a quick summary. And Peter is is right in his observation from his uh, comfy armchair about that one.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's right, Olaf, and that does that does also link into privacy as well, you know, and um, you know, being because you, what you don't want is to is to see the same, even if you see the same public key, always coming in the different transactions, and that's enough enough to put it into personal data, which creates its own is, own issues. Yep.
4: Well, okay, so but let me take a swing at that from the regulator's perspective mm-hmm. for a second, because yep. uh, if you talk to central banks you know, they're listening to the same webinars that we're all listening to, right? And so, and so they're, uh, they're going, hmm, so you mean to say instead of demanding detailed reports from the banks that they try very hard not to fill in properly, I can just connect up my API to the central network and suck the data out in real time. And then I I can relieve them of their reporting obligations because I'm getting the real juice here, right? So I think this is going to be an area of massive development for regulation, in the next few years, because they'll unavoidably get onto that and start saying, "Hold on a sec, we want the stuff straight out of the network,
0: right?" It, it uh, is a, it is go, a no, massive. No, no, you
4: can have everything. And they'll go, "Okay, let's work out what you can have." You know, so that's a whole change to yeah. the way to reporting happens right now.
0: It's a massive issue, Chris, and I think you know that that that's you know that's why people are concerned about CDBCs in China, right, because of the privacy concerns. But you know that 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 balance, getting the right balance to privacy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but also anonymity and the fact that we will want to, you know, combat EML and CTF and all these things, I think is, is a, ma- you're quite right. It's a huge issue. Um, and the technology in a way is the easy, bit, right. It's actually what the public policy considerations are the hard bit.
4: That's exactly right. But it's going to change for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Peter Davies says, Chris, exactly my point. South African demand for item by item data with each individual payment was a massively retrograde step. Now, unbelievably, we're down to our last four or five minutes. Um has always flown by. Um and I, I'd like to sort of ask each of you something. And and Denise Robles has given us quite an interesting way into that. She's she says, I love blockchain and APIs, but as a customer, I can pay anything around the world with PayPal. So what's going to be the difference if a if a new platform uh is is created? Um so perhaps each of you could think about what the answer to that question is. You know, are we just is this ever more efficient solutions, to the problem of efficiency and making payments that we're aiming at, we're not changing anything fundamental. But I'm, I'm wondering if I could ask each of you to, to give me some idea of what you think um, would be a truly revolutionary change in both domestic payments and cross-border payments or either if you like, just something which is really gonna change the way we do things and get that one and a half two trillion $2 trillion cost, which is lowering all our standards of living so continual tax on global trade, how we get that that down to a sort of Nuget tree level. And I and I wonder, um, Chris, if I could start with you, because you've got a long experience in, in market infrastructures, payments, market infrastructures. Are they an important part of the solution here? Can they provide this network of interoperators, network of networks using APIs that enable true innovators in, in payments to run around on, creating lots of interesting but very low-cost. Money transmission services, our infrastructure is somewhat unexpectedly the answer here. Yeah,
4: they they can. Whether they will or not is going to depend on a whole lot of factors, including the regulation in their jurisdictions and so forth. So there's a lot of complexity there, and some will do it quite well, and some will do it very badly. Um, but I I um, I think uh, a perspective to have because we're living in the real world rather than you know the magic one world. The, the the perspective to have is that. The traditional the legacy market infrastructures are engaged on a multi multi-year step change exercise right now going from batch-based solutions to real-time solutions now we haven't had time to talk about real time today and that's fine real time's not about being fast real time is about fundamentally re-architecting the infrastructure right if it's done properly and all of the modern versions of real-time innovation in market infrastructures around the world are actually about making them work in a digital world. They're not really fundamentally or at first point about being fast, right? So it's very likely that a good selection of those are going to come through and enable banks and non-banks to innovate on a new platform for quite a long time into the future. And if they do that well, they're in good shape because they are the incumbent network and network effects rule our world, right? That's the way it'll be. Where that isn't there, because the world is still cash for that economy or because the market infrastructure really drops the ball, then there are these really exciting innovations in blockchain uh, and in new types of networks that are coming coming through and can replace those things. So so my view of the world is the market infrastructures have to step up to do um, this interoperability and to enable this new level of development. The technology is all there. It's purely a political and social problem right now. Uh, to get those costs down and to make the thing more efficient, uh, and the guys that do it well will have the benefit of the network effect behind them, and the guys that don't are going to have some pretty interesting new technologies sorting them out.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Chris, uh, is this a, is this an area for for Glyph to get involved in trying to encourage that interoperability between national infrastructures?
4: Absolutely, Mu- muscular regulation is is, a, is going to be a necessary part of this picture. I'm afraid.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: And, and I was going to pick up um, exactly on some of Chris's earlier theme, that idea of interoperability. And if you think of the future of either your traditional payment infrastructures or more innovative, let's say blockchain networks, you, and, and you start with the basic question, how many identities do we all on this conference today have or any individual business? And the reality is hundreds. True. But why is one, for example, as Denise has highlighted her PayPal identity, why is that more important? It's because of the network effect. It's because of all the merchants of all of the um, different options that are available to her to make a payment through PayPal. But as Chris pointed out, well, (laughs) if someday that account was deactivated because PayPal is a private company and they have a policy and they choose to do it, that's a real problem for the user of that. And I do think that whether it's looking at the traditional um, your market infrastructures, or the emerging different networks for payments, the focus either from a consumer or from regulatory perspective really should be around interoperability so that consumers do have the ability to move from one to the other, to move from an innovative world to a more traditional world where they could cash checks that come from the US government in a seamless way without having to manage themselves hundreds of digital identities, which all have different levels of trust from the recipients. Mm
1: Thank you, Claire. So uh, Oliver, you, you've heard both Claire and Chris talk about the, you know, this is not just a technological choice we need here. Actually, it's more complicated than that. There are political, social, economic choices to be made as well before we arrive at a better global system of, of payments and cheaper one as well.
3: Right, I, I think um, those points are hugely complimentary and, and I've nothing fundamental to add other than that I think um part of the key uh did you say olaf or oliver uh, um uh is is destigmatization of the uh blockchain flavored projects um and and the education curve um required to see how those you know how those blockchain and even some kind of semi blockchain solutions like corda address those problems mm-hmm. okay john
1: destigmatization of, of of your clients work uh would make a a, a big advance in making payments cheaper, faster, better?
0: Yeah, I mean, it does come down to uh, the policy considerations that we talked about earlier, Dominic, but also one of the challenges about doing this on a global, truly global basis is, while we might have a relatively consistent view for something like AML and CTF, you know, the culture and regulatory infrastructure of a country is quite important to that country. And, you know, the U.S. have a quite a different view from us in Europe versus Asia. You know, what's acceptable in China will not be acceptable here. So it's quite a challenge to say, let's have a global system that everything works in the same way and is acceptable politically, socially, etc. to everyone. So, you know, got to take these cultural norms and uh, Regulator. I mean, that's what I find, you know, all the time trying to trying to do these global projects. Is yeah, you know, sometimes it's a it's an accident of history, but often it's it's a lot more deep deep rooted than that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, every country has its payments culture. There's no doubt about that. So Linking them up is going to be very very difficult. Now, Rob, you've been very articulate this afternoon on, you know, the other half of 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 payments. You know, the cost of actually acquiring people to to use all these. Um, solutions and there is a risk there that we that we end up with this race to the bottom um, as opposed to settling upon the optimum global solution. What's your What's your vision I suppose of, of what would constitute not just radical change in the global payments markets but actually the most useful and most valuable change? Thanks thanks, Dominic.
2: <laughs> I I think the word I've heard the most today has been interoperability and Along with that, I think comes an abstraction opportunity uh, and a repositioning of the trust anchors and a move towards identity. Um, I think that's going to be a very interesting space to watch. You know, as we start abstracting away the payment instrument from the identity, and um, you know, we'll see more and more digital identity platforms start coming to prominence. But they're going to need to sit on the back of some payments infrastructure. How does that relate then to blockchain-enabled solutions? I think that's going to be a very interesting space to watch um i am concerned about the race to the bottom you know are we going to see massive vc funded you know subsidized payments running through some of these these big you know payments businesses for the next few years before everything shakes out we don't really know that's going to be really interesting to watch but i, I really agree with all the sentiments that have been uh, you know expressed here from interoperability and you know in my mind immediately i go interoperability abstraction of the payment instrument introduction of more rigorous identity opportunities and shifting trust anchors, and that relates obviously to the banks and then to civil institutions. And I think that's a that's an absolutely fascinating space. Maybe we should do a session on that one day. But that's that's my 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 guess for now. We'll, we'll dig up this recording in ten years.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Bob. No, we will definitely be coming back to this subject. Don't worry, we're, we're only scratching the surface. Olaf, perhaps you could you could see us out of this session, but we're going to have to stop uh, in a minute. Give us your vision of. a a payments market the ideal payments market of the future is my thought that the infrastructures have some role to play here in creating the network of networks chris has referred to a plausible one or are those national differences which john has referred to so eloquently an obstacle in the way of that
5: you absolutely will need a network of networks if i think of the wholesale side of the house um, we have securities we have cash They're they're in different places as we explore um, the use of blockchain technology. It's very likely now we have more private tokens on more private networks. So the wholesale side definitely needs to solve for the network and networks problem and interoperability um, that's there. Uh, I think the the cash side is the big enabler. If we have, if I look at all the things we're doing at the, the Six Digital Exchange, we look and go, if we can solve for money, payment part, we can solve for many other things. Not the payment part to make a payment, um, as you might do to a merchant, but the payment part that's attached to a cross-border securities transaction, the payment part that's attached to settling a foreign exchange transaction. So yes to network of networks, yes to interoperability, and yes, we need some new form of payment, be that CBDC or its private equivalent, as long as the the risk is the central bank equivalent. So those, those three components.
2: Okay,
1: thanks. In fact, we've got a session coming up. I uh, can't remember when it is the next month or so on uh, security tokenization. So we'll be looking at the cash leg of, of securities transactions and how that might drive rapid growth in the security token market. But sadly, I think we must uh, stop there. As I said a minute ago, I think we've really only scratched the surface of this subject, as always. Um, I'd like to thank our panelists Chris Hamilton, Oliver Lonsberg, Sadie, Oliver Ran- Olaf Ransom. Uh, Claire Rowley, John Salmon, and Rob Lincoln. and I'd also like to thank our audience for your interest and especially your your questions, comments uh, and observations. But for now it's goodbye.